2: kind of made a habit of doing in recent years. Perhaps, I don't know how long we've been doing it. Because basically I'm in a Christopher Nolan movie and time has been cut up into different strands and chopped back together and tied in lanyards. Uh, It could be that I'm doing this show before we did the shows about the Coen brothers and Hitchcock. Well, never mind. See, this is the kind of trouble you get into right away, just right away without even meeting to. Uh, All right, so here to help us talk about Christopher Nolan, including reminding some of you who he is, uh, our two guests who I am very excited to have. James Handley is the co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, where I have seen more than one Christopher Nolan movie. I don't really actually know how many Christopher Nolan movies I've seen, and this time I'm not being you know coy or anything. I really don't know how many of them I've seen there, Uh, but a bunch of them, I'm sure. Uh, And uh, joining us also, Tom Schoen, uh, who's the film critic for The Sunday Times and the author of five books. His latest is The Nolan Variations, The Movies, Mysteries, and Marvels of Christopher Nolan. And a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk to Kaylee Donaldson. Uh, There are issues that kind of come up around, uh, A, uh, women uh, in, uh, in Nolan movies, and B, the way in which a certain portion of the Nolan fan base reacts to criticism. Um, being a friend of, of the film critic David Edelstein, I've actually lived through one of those episodes, and I can tell you it is not pleasant. Uh, all right, so um, Tom Schoen, first of all, welcome. The, the book is a, a lot of fun, and you learn not only about Christopher Nolan movies, but all about all the movies that Christopher Nolan watched in order to become Christopher Nolan, and, and that was a, a lot of fun as well. Um, one of the things that you're essentially making is a case for Nolan as as possibly the dominant. Uh, film auteur of the 21st century in terms of commercial success, in terms of critical accolades. But but make that case or make some kind of case uh, for Nolan as an important standalone
3: topic. Sure. Um, and it's very nice to be with you. Uh, the, um, I mean, the, the, the filmmaker he reminded me of a little was Hitchcock. Um, and there's a tendency, I think, with the filmmakers that are super successful commercially in their lifetimes, to become almost a little bit invisible. You know, they're they're hidden in plain sight. Um, And I think that the same is true of Nolan. I think that there's a sense that like, because he doesn't really need uh, film critics um, because the films, uh, you know, have such an immediate and, you know, loyal fan base. um, uh, There's a sense that like, he doesn't really sort of need the praise from people. Like, you know what I mean? That he doesn't get the attention or the depth of attention anyway that certain other filmmakers get. so, so that for me was the 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 fun of writing the book was like oh you know here he is right under everybody's nose um, uh, and you know and yet curiously I mean I think that he's you know treat, if, you know critics loved Inception I think um, but uh, you know there's a, the people are a little sniffy about him I think that was the that was what interested me um, but the fan base is hugely loyal so. Um, you know, I was trying to sort of split the difference or start up a conversation between those two. Um, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, as to where he is, I mean, he's, he's he's kind of like the Kubrick of the multiplex, is how I think of him. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a different era now, isn't it? So it's uh, the audience is younger. It's a different type of uh, cinema cinema going. But um, but I think yeah, he fits into that. He's he seems to me to be the kind of uh, descendant of. Filmmakers like Hitchcock and Fritz Lang and and um, and Kubrick,
2: right? Just to remind people, uh, we are talking uh, about the director, auteur, uh, who created. I'm back in the uh, filmography section of the book itself. I mean, it kind of starts 20 years ago uh, with Memento, and onto the uh, English-speaking version of Insomnia, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, uh, Dunkirk, Tenet. Uh, and more to come, certainly. So, James, since I do go to your movie theater a lot, uh, imagine that I were standing uh, out there in the lobby uh, and about to go in to watch a showing of Tenet at (laughs) Trinity Cine Studio. And I was saying, you know, I never get these movies. I feel like I have to go talk to five people afterwards and do a lot of homework and... You know, I don't know. I'm just kind of tempted to go home and put on Chinatown or something and watch it watch it again. I don't know. I, You know, so, m- James, make the case for me to go in and tackle Tenet, assuming I've never seen it before, which, of course, I have. But uh, what would you say to me?
4: Well, I'd say the first thing probably is completely clear your mind uh, of expectations and actual sort of, you know, like, like, for instance, you mentioned Chinatown, which everybody knows as a story who anybody in film knows as a story. And it's a very satisfying film with a very accessible story and great performances. Christopher Nolan, I, to me, uh, the very first thing I saw of his which happened to be memento, then I went back and saw some of his earlier things too, is that um, it's really an intellectual and actually in some levels, an emotional challenge that your previous experience with cinema does not necessarily apply. And I remember, um, thinking exactly the same thing when I first saw 2001 A Space Odyssey and and that that you know Kubrick was somebody who was like he spent his whole time making that film fighting with MGM and MGM execs were coming to see the 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 dailies of the film and they say what the hell is it about you know what tell us what it is you know because we don't know nobody's going to understand this and I think that what I would say to you going into um, Tenet, for example, is that if you clear your mind and, and think, well, actually, it's if you wanted to describe it, yes, it's an action film perhaps, but it's also an intellectual challenge. It's a puzzle. It's an extraordinarily intricate uh, coming together of somebody's ideas, but also a visual sense that is very innovative. Uh, And so it's, it's exciting to me and a challenge on every level. And that's what I would say, prepare yourself for a ride, but don't have expectations, just really clear your mind. And then I think you can really
2: have this extraordinary experience. Um, I Actually, a- I'm, a- gonna, I'm just going to pause you there for a second because I think there's a way in which uh, Nolan himself does that, uh, says something very similar to us when we're uh, watching Tenet. We're going to hear a little clip. Uh, this is Clément's poesie. I hope I said that right. Is Barbara uh, and John David Washington as protagonist. Go.
4: It's inverted.
2: Its
1: entropy runs backwards. So to our eyes, its movement is reversed. We think it's a type of inverse radiation triggered by nuclear fission.
2: You didn't make it.
1: We don't know how yet.
2: So where would it come from?
4: Someone's manufacturing them in the future. They're streaming back at
2: us. Try it. How can it move before I touch it?
4: From your point of view, you caught it.
0: But from the bullet's point of view, you dropped it. But cause comes before effect. No, that's just the way we see time. Well, what about free will? That bullet
4: wouldn't have moved if you hadn't put your hand there. Either way we run the tape, you made it happen. Don't try to understand it. Feel it.
2: Don't try to understand it. Feel it. Um, Tom Schoen, in a way, that does sound a little bit like Nolan saying more or less what James said when James said, Clear Your Mind.
3: Sure, I was just actually thinking of the added challenge there of, uh, of hearing the dialogue without seeing yes. the, uh, <laughs> the, the bullets flying up. I mean, the, um, the, the thing I'll sort of add to that is that the, um, for, for, for Nolan, um, you know, it essentially comes from, you know, the, the idea of the film uh, was a very sort of visceral one. In other words, it wasn't an idea. Um, it was a sort of fascination he had that his eye had looking at um either sort of when they first discovered slow mo and started using that i think it was the 84 olympics when he first started seeing that on sort of network tv um and then also sort of backwards you know uh, footage and he just found his eye he just found himself fascinated by that um and it's a very vis- visceral fascination you know like it's sort of not an idea so much as it is a feeling um uh, and i think the kind of fil- the film you know for me sort of shares that you know the 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 i the the idea of and the sight of things flowing backwards never quite lost its its kind of appeal um uh i mean it's used actually quite limitedly in the film there's not that much of it um and i think it's used sparingly but yeah it's uh you know um so i think that was the that was the 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 thrill for him um and then trying to construct a plot around it that that you know, hopefully made sense.
2: You know, James, one of the things that jumped out at me in in Tom's book is, you know, on the one hand, he he begins by talking about this century, uh, the, the last 20 years of time, and how, in fact, you know, we have been tra- transformed digitally. We have been transformed uh, through the internet so that you are not so much bound by the place that you're sitting in. You're not so much bound by time. Uh, you don't, people just don't, don't see a necessity to see a thing as it happens. It's just infinitely available to them. There are so many different ways uh, in which, as Tom says, we are living in a Christopher Nolan film. And then I was sort of surprised to find out a few pages later that Nolan doesn't really participate in very much of that stuff. He does not own a smartphone or a cell phone. He doesn't have an email account. And, you know, the description of how he makes movies, you know, including having the cast and crew in to look at the rushes every day and stuff. It really sounds rather old fashioned. And, and I'm thinking of you, James, as someone who, who loves movies and has, has loved movies over the decades and decades. And wondering if one of the things you like about Nolan is not how beautifully modern he is, but how, in fact, he does seem to come from an earlier time.
4: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think of him as grounded in that sense, and I share that myself. I mean, I'm not a sort of very frequent participant, shall we say, in things like I mean, I'm not on Facebook, and I don't spend a lot of time uh, with social media. And um, I, I, I actually find myself, you know, it, when I find myself lost in a film like Tenet or uh, Interstellar, um, I, I find that is a a very profound sort of um, basic sort of sense of where I started with my fascination with film. Um, When I first saw This Is Cinerama when I was seven years old, um, it was a sensation uh, to me, a feeling that I never forgot. And of course, I went on to see many, many films and sort of found it so extraordinary to be drawn into those things drawn into the art of the film but also the ideas that were coming across and the person who was making it and it seems to me that Christopher Nolan is the kind of person who by his very sort of uh, uh, sort of distance from the uh, sort of modern era if you like of, of of communication and and shared experience and time dilation uh, of, of events being experienced in different things, all the things you described, he has a sort of almost a uh, a visceral sense of um, a, a foundation, if you will. That I feel that he's reading and he's fascinated with ideas and uh, the communications he has with his brother. You know, and the the the, the, the films he's interested in. It's almost like. Um, going back to the beginning for me going back to the beginning of sunny studio and why i wanted to be part of opening a theater and bringing people films everything from italian neorealism to kubrick and everything else that that it was that sort of basic feeling and it's it is a kind of going back um it's a kind of grounding i mean i think christopher nolan really i i agree uh with Tom that he's I can't think of anyone else actually who's who's quite like that I mean you can compare him to Hitchcock and uh to Kubrick but um it's like uh, Christopher Nolan is a new um event if you like appearing in the midst of this new universe that is so exhausting and 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 infuriating to a lot of people but here in the midst of it is a man of ideas and image and bringing symphonic music tracks to films that start at the beginning of the film and don't end till the end. It's not not—it's—it's it's all part of one. A sort of new understanding, I guess you'd say.
2: Yeah, there's some people who would include Nolan in the exhausting and frustrating uh, category, <laughs> and, and I, I would imagine that we will come to that. Although, Tom Schoen, I, I think one of the things that your book does to startle someone like me you know, I've seen all these movies. I'm not a Christopher Nolan fan. I pro- that's probably already come across a little bit. I mean, I, I'm i not a Christopher Nolan hater either, exactly. But um, but he, he wouldn't be like a defining filmmaker for me. But one of the things that I realized the minute I entered the world of your book is how little Nolan is known. I mean, we talk about Hitchcock. Well, you couldn't get away from Hitchcock the person. I mean, he hid a lot of things about who he really was. But you're really seeing him all the time. And Tarantino, uh, that is certainly the case. But, you know, even... Even compared to like the Coen brothers or Wes Anderson or I pick, pick some directors, there's a way in which Nolan, uh, except for what's in your book, uh, you know, I mean, uh, has, I think, been deliberately kind of unknowable, kind of pulling himself out of the normal publicity stream, even as he creates an oeuvre, which you argue is in some ways an oeuvre about him, an oeuvre in which he inhabits, I think you say, every frame.
3: Yeah. I mean, listen, that was you've identified like the central kind of fault line of the book and the, the the number of battles that you know we had uh you know with me essentially trying to convince him that that there was something expressive, personally expressive about these films. I mean, Nolan has kind of perfected the art of sort of talking about his films as well revealing nothing about himself as you, you know, point out. Um you know, I think he sort of said to me at one point, I must be the most readily available reclusive director in America. Like, you know, he has this sort of aura of somebody who is sort of, uh, you know, removed from the fray and doesn't do publicity, but he, you know, he's out there kind of promoting the films, but he just never reveals much about himself. And I kind of, when I first saw Memento, I just knew that that film Uh, came from the very centre of whoever made it. You know, like, it just, to me, had the sort of impress, the feeling of, like, a personal film. Um, I don't mean it was autobiographical, but I just meant that it was very personal. Um, And, you know, and so when I first approached him to do the book, um, you know, one of the first things he said to me was that, you know, don't put me on the psychiatrist's couch. You know, don't try and explain the films by, you know, reference to my life or, you know, me even. Um, So I had to do a kind of funny thing, which was respect that while also sort of persuade him that these films were, A, incredibly distinctive, right? They don't resemble anybody else's. Um, They only resemble, you know, his films. And B, personal to him. You know, that in other words, even though they're these big kind of, you know, commercial successes, they are also, you know, uh, a, a form of expression, artistic expression, um, uh, you know, and weirdly he had a kind of resistance to that. I think obviously it's nice to be called an artist. It's nice to be said that, you know, your work is art, but on the other hand, he, does, he doesn't he does particularly like the kind of spotlight into like him, his life and so on. So it was a funny, there was an odd balance there. But yeah, that's the fault line. And we waged many, many, many battles over that one.
2: Right. So, yeah, no, no creator wants to be autobiographical. And they all fight that even when they clearly are. It's a little bit different here. I mean, he really is not. Particularly visible, except that you know we're all doing these very human things. And let's, since we're you're mentioning Memento, James talked about Memento as uh, as his on ramp, as it was for for many many people. Um, you know, life is kind of lived forward, but understood backwards. Uh, no matter who you are, uh, there's a way in which the past. And the older you get, the more you're kind of palpating that past and kind of going backwards through it, trying to understand how you get to be where you are. Uh, that's what's happening to Leonard, the character played by Guy Pierce. Uh, let's talk. Uh, let's hear him talk to Carrie Ann Moss as Natalie.
0: I do have information for you. You gave me a license plate number. Had my friend at DMV trace it. Guess what name came up? John Edward Gamble john g do you know him no but his face on his driver's license looked really familiar i think he i think he's been in the bar maybe here's a copy of his license registration photo and all are you sure you want this
1: have i told you what this man did
0: yeah well then you shouldn't have to ask but even if you get revenge you're not gonna remember it you're not even gonna know that it happened my wife deserves vengeance doesn't make any difference whether i know about it just because there are things I don't remember doesn't make my actions meaningless. The world doesn't just disappear when you close your eyes, does it?
2: So, James, uh, you said that Memento made you even go and seek out earlier, less well-marketed uh, films uh, by Christopher Nolan. But but I don't know, what is Memento to you? What What is it that, that made you have that reaction?
4: I think it was a sense of excitement that it was like first of all it, it kind of baffled me uh, afterwards and then i had to go and see it again and i think it was the excitement of feeling the challenge of a really really different kind of film and um audiences uh, that i saw it with you could feel that half the audience was like wanted to know more. They wanted to figure this out and they wanted to see, you know, what you just raised about the whole sense of things going backwards and how you understand your life and understanding the sort of progressive narrative of a story suddenly being turned on its head and actually causing you to think differently um, it was like the it was like the nexus of a it felt like the next of film if you like uh it was that exciting to me um and i felt uh, the closest thing strangely enough well not maybe not strangely was when i saw 2001 in a complete print the first time i it it, it was like Uh, wait a minute, I need to go back and see it again and I need to somehow formulate my understanding of it and also realizing the fluidity of that, that there was no answer and there was no clear understanding. And I think that that's something that's very daring for a filmmaker to get into and obviously very threatening to film producers, I think, Um, uh, the, the idea that you could throw stuff out there and it might not be understood by everybody. And certainly in the case of memento everybody all the insiders you know i think uh, i i i seem to remember stories in the press then um about how uh, it was so hard to get it out there it finally gets out there and and it actually uh, against all odds as a kind of quirky art film it becomes a big success and um the people in the industry, especially the majors, didn't know what to make of it. I mean, I can remember having conversations with major distributors that we book with all the time. They say, can you explain to me what's going on with Memento? Why are people going to see that film? You know, it's like, really? Like, really? Like, how could this be? Yeah. And it, it it was that very thing that excited me, that that difference, that newness, that, that idea that you're, your, your pre-arranged sort of sense of what cinema was and how you understood it visually and, and, and intellectually was somehow, there was a seismic shift.
2: You know, Tom, in the book, um, well, first of all, to, to James's point, in the book, uh, Soderbergh is quoted as saying, "This is an incredible movie. If it can't get made, if I mean, if it can't get released, if it can't get marketed, um, you know, that means we're dead. We're just, you know, film is not going to be in good shape." Well, unfortunately, that didn't happen. But, but you know, Nolan says an interesting thing, which is that this was sort of a time when there were a lot of movies playing around with the idea that that this is not your little life, you know, that it's sort of the David Byrne (laughs) once-in-a-lifetime. You may say to yourself, uh, and whether it's The Matrix, The Fight Club, The Sixth Sense, these are all movies that I think Nolan cites, uh, and now Memento, and a number of the Nolan movies that would follow, there was suddenly an interest in having... Movies in which there was a central question about whether the reality being depicted on face value was yeah. in fact arguable reality, and and in that sense, he's more of a move part of a movement than an outlier.
3: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's interesting as you were saying that I was thinking, well, why why is that? What what was in the water that that sort of part of the you know decade? Um, I mean, you know, to me. I, I, I could only really explain it by sort of looking, drawing way, way back and just kind of looking at the fact that with the arrival of the Internet and computer technology, we've, you know, and the and the information age, we've just gone through this huge historical convulsion, you know, and we're still trying to find our feet. And, you know, for me, at least, that was kind of what I think people were ca- tapping into is that sense of disorientation, you know, the, the you know, the floor disappearing from under your feet. Um, and sort of Memento and The Matrix and all those other movies, to some extent, are dramatizing that. Um, uh, you know, it's it's curious. I mean, he isn't an internet. He isn't fond of the internet particularly. He's sort of, le- he's less in love with technology than you'd imagine, you know, a direct like that to be. Um, it gives, But it gives him this great outside perspective, I think, on that huge upheaval. Um, you know, we were talking. You were talking about the difficulty of it getting released. You know, it's so funny. Like it that reminded me of like one of the main things that I found attractive about the films, um, which was I just found the word anomalous kept on coming up. I was thinking, God, the whole the the movies are anomalous. His success is anomalous. You know, I find it much easier to imagine a universe in which Memento was a small art house hit, yeah, and it led to. Uh, A series of small movies that he scrambled to get funding for uh, complicated, you know, ambiguous, uh, all the things that, you know, producers hate. Uh, And yet somehow they're out there and they're the most popular films of the year and they're earning billions of dollars. You know, that to me is the is the exciting thing about him. Like, how is that? There's something very unlikely about it. I always think like <laughs> if aliens comes he came down and sort of said, you know, like his career would be the one that would be most difficult to explain. You know, why isn't yeah. this guy an art house filmmaker? Like, why? Mm-hmm. How has this happened? <laughs> you know. Um, All right. Well,
2: let's let's grab a little break here. We're talking to James Hanley, co-founder of Sydney Studio at Trinity College. Tom Shone, a film critic for the Sunday Times, and the author uh, most recently of The Nolan Variations: The Movies, Mysteries, and Marvels of Christopher Nolan. We'll be back. We've got to talk about this Batman fellow.
1: I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving.
0: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And we're back. Let's begin. (laughs) That's
2: okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, Let's begin here with a clip from The Dark Knight Rises.
0: The point. Far out there when the structures fail you, when the rules aren't weapons anymore, they're shackles, letting the bad guy get ahead. One day, you may face such a moment of crisis, and in that moment, I hope you have a friend like I did. To plunge their hands into the filth so that you can keep yours clean. Your hands look plenty filthy to me, Commissioner.
2: That's Gary Oldman as Commissioner Gordon, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Blake. Um, so we're talking to James Hanley, co-founder of Sydney Studio at Trinity College. Tom Schoen, film critic for the Sunday Times. His newest book is "The Nolan Variations: The Movies, Mysteries, and Marvels of Christopher Nolan." So. This is all, I don't know, this is a very difficult subject to get into, I think, because, I mean, Batman is certainly there uh, before Christopher Nolan comes along, and he's there in a lot of different manifestations. There have been, uh, in the comic books, uh, different interpretations of him, other movies uh, made with with other Batmans, and, and yet Nolan seems to make a really remarkable set of choices about what he's going to do with Batman. And maybe, Tom, you can just sort of get us going. I mean, talk about how you see maybe the fundamental choice or two uh, that, uh, that Nolan decides on.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamental choice that he made was, I mean, he didn't want to make a comic book superhero movie basically like that's how I see it. Like he the material was a superhero, you know, a superhero in a comic book. But the the kind of the the gift of Batman, if you like, is that he's probably the closest to a kind of mere mortal in that he doesn't have superpowers. He's, you know, just a man um who dresses up in a cape and so on. So that put him within the wheelhouse of, you know, uh, a, a more straightforward action movie, firstly. Um but I think also he just wanted to remove some of the kind of the the shine um, from the superhero movie um, so that you came out thinking not, oh, that was a really good superhero movie, but oh, that was just a really good movie. And so he wanted it to compete with, um, you know, the very best action thrillers that he had seen. Um, I mean, I think it actually does more than that to tell the truth. I think it probably is better than even kind of most action thrillers but that, that was the basic starting point it's like how can we make this this the absurdity of like a man who dresses up in a cape every night how can we make that real he certainly
2: um, he certainly does By at the time of dark knight rises he has thoroughly succeeded in removing the shine anyway and i did see that james in your movie theater I and mean, i remember just walking around thinking this is like messing up my blood pressure and stuff. I'm just like, this is so. Uh, uh, there's some something so despairing uh, about this whole narrative, uh, and uh, but I, I want to talk. I actually want to talk about the the middle one, the Dark Knight, uh, and, and and James. I think you and Tom and I could have an interesting conversation about whether Christopher Nolan has a sense of humor, whether he could ever make a comedy, uh, whether we would want to see the comedy that he made. Uh, but there's a way in which. The performance by Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight Rises as the Joker is this just remarkable thing. I mean, it's not a comic performance exactly, but I actually had this experience of watching the movie, I think it's in a studio, and and suddenly imagining that if I looked down the aisle of seats, the row of seats that I was sitting in, The Joker might be sitting down there and kind of looking at me and laughing at me, you know, and that I would find that very unsettling. There's a way in which he somehow or other achieves a kind of sort of meta status or a superiority to the narrative that I don't think I've ever seen in, in anything like this before. But James, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it.
4: Yeah, I I think that's really true. I mean, I, I first of all, I think generally uh, taking on the Batman series and turning it into something almost like a, a an academic psychological treatise in a way that underpins what's going on in all of the films. But I think that in um, his his connection, uh, Christopher Nolan's connection with Heath Ledger um, and the the Joker character is is like. There is a, there's a really serious dark humor to it. I can't quite describe anything that I've seen in cinema that that moment when um, uh, he turns around and clicks the cell phone and blows the hospital up. I mean, that is like, uh, I just think of the the Warner's executives seeing that and uh you know not being able to stop it it's like you know one of the things that nolan has done uh, is this extraordinarily uh, this sort of pirouette if you like of taking intellect and then talking these major funders these big uh, distributors into making films that stand not only as uh in in as tent poles in the market that make lots of money but also have real substance to them and i think um that the the middle of the the triad of uh, batman films it really gets to the heart of that that it actually can be uh, parsed as a serious film it's really extraordinary to think of that that um, you know, I, I had trouble persuading some people to see that film because it, with the immediate assumption was, well, action film, superhero film, you know, it'll be a bore. But actually, it's it's got layer upon layer, and it's a real uh, thing that you can take apart. You can go and see it several times, and you can take a character like the Joker uh, who who becomes a real uh, sort of philosophical treatise about th- what happens where is this person coming from how could he be like this and and in the case of Heath Ledger about his connection to Heath Ledger even uh, it it was an extraordinary intensity to me that uh that this was able to happen in what was seen as a mainstream film and uh, it, just one final thing in taking that uh, taking the trilogy I mean rumor had it I, I heard from people I talked to at Warner Brothers that they were having trouble getting Christopher Nolan to agree to the third film. And what he wanted was a guarantee that he could make Inception. And they there was a they wanted him, of course, they got him. And then they had this idea. I remember talking to the the booker for Inception. I say, well, you know, this is really uh, it's kind of out there. It's just you're up your street, it's an art film. Mm-hmm. And of course, it wasn't an art film, it was a huge success also. And this was like an an affirmation of the process that was happening in the Batman films, this bringing in of a serious intellectual and I think emotional underpinning that made these layered films so fascinating to, to watch and to watch again.
2: So um, I I want to, first of all, just kind of double down on what both of you just said and between Tom saying you know, that he really wanted to make uh, a series of movies that were not simply superhero movies, that were just movies that happen to have superheroes in them. And I, I think that's sort of borne out, not that the Oscars is particularly meaningful, but I think we all understand that the reason that the Oscars wound up expanding their best film category uh, to, to include more movies and a chance to have more kinds of movies was the feeling afterwards that the fact that The Dark Knight had not been nominated in that category was a problem uh, and that there was something deeply wrong with feeling to acknowledge it that way uh, but let's hear a, a little bit uh, of Heath Ledger uh, and Christian Bale
0: those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were but I know the truth there's no going back you've changed things forever and why do you want to kill me? <laughs> I don't... I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, no. No. No, you. You complete me. You're garbage You kills for money. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak. Like me. They need you right now. But when they don't, They'll cast you out, like a leper. See, their morals, their code, it's a bad joke. Dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you, when the chips are down, these, uh, these civilized people, they'll eat each other.
2: My producer, Jonathan McPants, is pointing out <laughs> that it's a wonderful thing that the Joker has seen Jerry Maguire. Um, so, um, so you know, I mean, uh, there's so much to say, and we are in a Christopher Nolan fashion, kind of short on time here. But um, maybe the thing to say kind of overarchingly uh, that you could talk about, Tom Schoen, is there's a way in which the world building in all of these movies uh, is so extreme I mean in 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 most of the movies that we're talking about whether it's interstellar or inception or tenet uh, or 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 Dunkirk, you know these are these are worlds. I mean, Dunkirk's a historical reality, but these other things, these are worlds that kind of have to be built for the purpose of the movie. And I think I would argue that even with these Batman movies, he really has to build a world that is very, very different from any Batman world that we've ever seen before. And and so that might be why we're talking about a dominating filmmaker in terms of what he's got twelve movies, right? I mean, he's it's he says in your book. It's really hard for me to make movies. There's no way I'm ever going to make another movie just to get another movie made. But could you say a bit more about just sort of, you know, what's he's not Hitchcock in that sense, I think. He's not he's not just going to pump them out.
3: No, uh, sure. I mean I mean the world-building thing is is uh is really um it gets I think to the sort of heart of why he makes movies. I mean, he always describes like going to see 2001 when he was a kid and like the sense of just complete transport um, that he got from that, um, you know, and the films do invite you into this world. I mean, the interesting thing about The Dark Knight is that, that you know, it's actually a much smaller movie than the first film um, geographically. And, you know, it's just set within the, the city, mostly Gotham, I think they go abroad to Hong Kong once, but um, but the idea that like by constricting the world, you know, bringing the world in tighter you, but the film feels big. It feels bigger than the first film. So that's a paradox. It's kind of like a, it's very peculiar, but that kind of is very much where he's sort of at, Um, you know, in terms of uh, getting the films made. I mean, yes, he's sort of, it's certainly, you know, he's the only, I I think, I mean, I guess you could say, you know, uh, James Cameron, maybe Peter Jackson, both of them to some degree have kind of almost retired in my, not entirely, but they seem like they've kind of ascended to the next level. Um, But Nolan is one of the few film directors who can kind of walk into a studio and say, you know, here's my new idea. um, And then they'll give him however many million, hundred millions of dollars to go go make it. Um, There is this sort of degree of trust. He's built this relationship with Warner Brothers. Um, That's interesting james about the idea that you know it was with the promise of the dark, the third dark knight film that he got inception made certainly the fact that you know the dark knight made i think it was the first to make a billion dollars you know that also opened the you know the the, the way to inception um i mean the, it's a remarkable career really i mean it's sort of you kept on expecting a stumble i mean maybe the closest would be tenant i mean people complained that they didn't understand bits of it you know like it's it's uh you know, it's, it's it's an amazing thing to have a studio that's essentially willing to kind of write a check for you, for a movie that's as uh, as confounding as *Tenet*.
2: Um, we're going to take a little break here. Uh, we've got one more segment to go. Uh, I'll be excited to add Kaylee Donaldson, a pop culture writer and critic, uh, to this conversation to talk about uh, ma- men and masculinity, women, and fans all in the Nolan verse. We are back. It's time for me to thank Kat Pastor. She is our technical producer here and um, the person playing all these clips and things. Uh, And of course, Jonathan McPants is the person who envisioned this episode uh, and pulled all of it together uh, in such marvelous shape. Uh, We are talking about the work of Christopher Nolan, uh, probably arguably the dominant uh, cinematic uh, auteur of the 21st century, at least in terms of critical accolades and commercial success. Uh, We've been talking to James Hanley and Tom Schoen who are still with us. We're very excited to add Kaylee Donaldson, a pop culture writer and critic uh, to this conversation. And Kaylee, before I get you going, I think what I'm going to do, because uh, some of what you want to talk about kind of springs off of the diving board of Dunkirk, uh, let's play a little clip from Dunkirk. You'll hear Mark Rylance um, and Killian Murphy uh, and Tom Glynn Carney. Here we go. There's no hiding from this, son. What is it you think you can do with that? On this thing. It's not just us. The call went out. We aren't the only ones to answer, you know. You don't even have guns. You have a gun? Yes, of course. I'm rightful. 303. Did it help you against the dive bombers and the U-boats?
0: You're an old fool. I'm not going back. I'm not going back.
2: Turn it around. I'm not turning around.
0: Turn it around! Turn it around! On, McDowell,
2: so, Kaylee, there's uh, so many things going on even in that clip, and kind of an inversion uh, of uh, our, our standard boilerplate understanding of war movie heroism. Uh, the soldier is very afraid, the civilian is, uh, seems to be uh, calm and composed as only Mark Rylands can be, I guess. Uh, so, say more about what you're extracting from all that.
1: Yeah, one of the reasons that I think that Dunkirk is Nolan's best film is it has this incredible understanding of masculinity, particularly the most damaged version of it that takes place in wartime. I remember when the film came out and there were some of the kind of usual criticisms that Nolan gets. The big one he's always had throughout his career is that he's there's he's not great at writing women, and there aren't any women in this film at all, which I actually think is to the benefit of it because I agree it's not his strongest point. But here you really get to see him focus in on these themes that he is so adept at and this is a story all about it's basically dissecting the the great war myth one of the great moments in that film comes at the end where you hear that iconic churchill speech and in the final shot of the film it cuts back to one of the soldiers who's just gotten off of the beach of dunkirk having this two-second realization oh i have to go back this doesn't end for me there's no glory in that moment it's not a film that pumps up war as this great moment it's a, a story all about how it destroys the lives of to the leaders of the world, thousands, millions of faceless boys, essentially. The film mostly focuses on a group of young men who kind of all look the same and all look about 17 years old. And I think that that's so powerful. That's where I really think it's the best thing he's ever done.
2: You know, one of the things that struck me uh, about that movie, and uh, James, I think we talked about it on the show, um, was that what he didn't do was have sort of the really big, you know, flotilla moment. You, and there wasn't sort of this... Kind of huge array of boats with some massive Elgar score playing in the background. He kind of ducked away from what you would expect to see on a big screen in a story like that one.
4: Yeah, I think that's really true, and um, I think uh, I, I think that uh, I sort of agree about Dunkirk actually being a very significant film. Uh, I, I don't know. I, for me, Interstellar is uh, one of the most provocative films, or perhaps the top for me. But um, Dunkirk, I think, is fascinating because it actually uh, brings the uh, focus of war and this sort of u- using boys as fodder, really, and the distance from uh, a sort of human reality of all of these people being killed and the inescapability of the hazard that they face and the whole nature of why wars occur and how they require, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you, 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 you buy the uh, tree chopping machine and trees are gonna get chopped you have all of the armaments and so people are going to die there's going to be a war and and somehow Christopher Nolan manages in Dunkirk to make it almost in that that huge IMAX image actually makes it so intimate and so precise about character and about people and about the illusions of masculinity, actually, and masculinity as it's used in war.
2: Yeah, I'm going to just jump in because we're kind of short on time. But yeah, I think one of the points that Kaylee makes so well is that this is maybe, this is his empathy movie. This is this movie, if you are concerned about whether Christopher Nolan has feelings and is in touch with them, maybe this is the place that that happens. Kaylee, our time is short, but you you really brought up another thing, which I've kind of experienced at the side of somebody going through it, which is what it's like for a critic. Who writes something negative uh, about a Nolan movie? There is a group of Nolan fans, uh, kind of ninja geeks, who who will really go after you just over a negative review, right?
1: Yeah, he's he certainly inspires a level of fervor that I find quite fascinating. I think it's partly because I mean you have to go back to the Batman films he made. He was the filmmaker that for a whole generation of um geeks for lack of a better term it's such a broad term now really made um superhero movies and comic book films seem legitimate seem like a very serious topic for very serious filmmakers i mean you you still see the shadow of especially the dark knight i mean we had that joker film a couple years ago which didn't even come close to what nolan did and i think for a lot of fans there is something really powerful about Nolan doing that. He's also one of the few filmmakers who can get a massive $200 million film made based on his name alone. Like, I mean, even Spielberg has trouble with that nowadays. And I think that there is something about that that inspires a kind of, you know, adoration because he is really standing at the top of a very tall pile right now. It's weird to be on the other end of, because, you know, for, for all the things I've said, Nolan is not a scrappy underdog. So it's very strange to see him be defended as such. (laughs) um but i i I sort of understand the mindset even if i think you know maybe they should all chill a bit because because no one seems like a really chill guy i don't think he'd be for all of that
2: well actually this is a good place for us to end yeah i mean to me by the way just being an adult means reading a review of a movie that you like that's a negative review and being intrigued if the writer is making. I remember having that experience with Schindler's List and reading Leon Wieseltier's takedown of it and thinking, wow, I just had never thought about it that way. That's really interesting. Um, Tom Schoen, yes, we only have about a minute left, but it does seem like the, this ferocious group uh, of sometimes even death threat making Nolan Defenders are, are nothing like the man you describe in the book.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's very... He's got he's really got a kind of cult reputation. I mean, um, uh, that's the only way to describe it, a kind of mass cult. I mean, it's, it's, he's not, I mean, is he like, no, I mean, I, the, the thing it reminds me of a little bit is kind of, you know, his stories of when he was growing up and how important escape was to him. Um, you know, he went to this sort of very tough sort of boarding school and, um, And he would sort of entertain himself late at night after the lights were out in his dorm, um, essentially with a kind of personal cinema show in his own head, Um, you know, concocting stories, using his Sony Walkman to kind of, you know, prompt the sort of, you know, the, the musical cues, a bit like Edith Piaf in Inception. And it really struck me how important that escape impulse is to him, you know, like, You know, his characters aren't just trying to, like, escape reality. They are, their lives depend on their ability to escape reality. Um, It's intolerable to them, you know. And I think that, to some extent, he's captured that in the movies that he's made and and made his fans care
2: passionately about it i I hate interrupting you here but we are literally out of time and christopher nolan would understand being out of time if any director would the nolan variations the movies mysteries and marvels of christopher nolan is tom shone's book Uh, read it go see a movie at trinity cine studio and make sure you keep up with the work of kaylee donaldson pop culture writer and critic